Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is... Anna Triandafilidou, the author with Ruby Gropas of What is Europe, published by Routledge. This book, which has just been published in open access in its second edition, explores the meaning of the concept of Europe. Quote, a concept that takes different shapes and meanings depending on the realm of life on which it is applied and the historical period we're looking at, end quote. Anna Triandafilidou is a sociologist and recently appointed Canada Excellence Research Chair in Migration and Integration at Toronto Metropolitan University. She previously taught at the University of Surrey, the London School of Economics, Rome, Florence, and Thrace. Ruby Gropas, who unfortunately can't be with us uh, since she's lost her voice, which is important for podcasts, um, leads the social market economy team and the advisory service for the president of the European Commission. Anna, welcome to the podcast. Hello, and thank you for having me. Um, well, you're right, you're right in the introduction to the book, um, that this was this idea was first mooted in 2004 as part of the New Europe series, I presume in the wake of the uh, enlargement at the time, when you were both working as academics in Greece. Can you talk us through the genesis of the idea, how it developed into a first edition, and why you decided to write a second? Oh, yeah, thank you. That's uh, almost that's history. Um, actually, well, as, as you can imagine, 2004 was a different moment for, for Europe and for Greece in that particular moment. Uh, Greece was running the Olympic Games. I personally was just uh, uh, returning after 15 years abroad. Um, and Ruby, had, uh, who actually grew up mostly outside of Greece, had gone back uh, a couple of years earlier and we met through work. And the, the, the book really, thinking about the book, started as an invitation by the then editor of Palgrave of the New Europe series. And um, so there was an editor at Palgrave, Stephen Kennedy, and there was Helen Wallace, who is a well-known scholar on European issues. And they invited initially me, and then I asked uh, Ruby to join me because I felt she had really the expertise that I was lacking, for instance, in international affairs and in what we call political Europe. And basically the whole idea was that there is no single answer. So, so when Ellen Wallace said, oh, how about you write in this book? Because actually I had reviewed um, a book proposal by someone else and I had found it uh, completely inadequate. And she said, oh, from your comments, it sounds like you know what you would like this book to be about. How about you write it? And, and then for me, it was... This whole idea that there's so many Europes, as if these are different layers 
So, um, and there's so many ways to, to conceive of Europe. And then what um, transpired this at the time, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm pointing out that this was a different time compared to today. Um, it was really important to make the point that Europe and the EU are two distinct things. And in that, in that sense, for instance, that the 10 countries that joined um, the EU in 2004 and then 2007, the other two, were not um, they were not becoming European. They were European, but they were becoming members of the European Union. If you see what I mean, so it, it was those reflections, and um, you know, I, I wish to dig deeper into what is Europe today. Yeah, and you you also write uh, in the introduction that the, the the quote Europe kept being a moving object while you were writing. How, how did you handle that? Uh, there was a, yeah, exactly. Well, on one hand, there is a common trope when we talk about Europe, which again, kind of slides towards the European Union, is that Europe is always in crisis. So we go from one crisis to the next uh, in that sense. And it keeps being a moving object because there are so many competing definitions and there's positive, but also negative definitions of like of whether Europe is a good thing or a bad thing. And I'll just give the example so 2004 was generally a moment of um, celebration, a moment of um, positive affirmation. And then quickly at the end of that decade, we get to the global financial crisis and particularly the Eurozone uh, crisis. And, and that put a lot of question marks about the, what Europe and in that sense, the European. So what, what Europe is that is not the European Union? How can people contest um, you know, which path uh, we're getting at. And later again, I think we saw this in relation to 2015 and, uh, you know, the refugee emergency. And uh, I think that the enlargement and also discussions about further enlargement towards um, the Western Balkans really has been posing this question about uh, what is the history and the culture and the concepts uh, you know, the conceptions of who is or who qualifies of being European that emerge uh, time and again in, you know, in different, how can I say, configurations in different, um, you know, sometimes more inclusive and sometimes more exclusive. Yeah, I mean, later on in the book, you, um, I mean, for, for sort of pro-Europeans of a certain age like myself, you, you, you identify rightly that the that the founding history or the sort of um, uh, I guess the, the the myth of European uh, integration tends to be have this linear thing running from the Greek or Roman world through Christendom to the Age of Reason, fascism, war, and peace, and it it does leave out not just as you as you say in the in the book not just the Sephardic Ashkenazi Jews, it, it leaves out Al-Andalus, it leaves out Balkan Muslim histories, even leaves out, leaves out um, Nordic history. Uh, it, it, was, that, was that something you really wanted to capture in this, in this book? Yeah, I think definitely we wanted to criticise this um, unilinear you know, concept, exactly as you said, of Europe that starts with Socrates and Pericles and somehow in some sort of natural evolution um, gets us to enlightenment, to uh, the French Revolution and to where we are today. And um, 
we did want to criticize exactly all the silences that you mentioned um, and all the negative aspects and also all the contingencies that there's nothing natural in the way um, we understand Europe today. And actually it is, so, so for instance, one thing that we're showing is that uh, when uh, the concept or the term Europe emerged, it referred to more or less the Southeast Mediterranean and Mesopotamia rather than what we understand geographically as Europe today. Second, Europe became, as, as a concept or as a term, became unconsequential for a long period of time and in a way it was reinvented uh, through enlightenment and there a lot of things were silenced including you know minorities um, in, including colonialism or of course we've seen how you know racism and how all this has developed um, thankfully more critical um, today and um, the other element that, that we pointed out and we find through through history is the relationship between Europe and Christianity and Christendom. So Christendom in the sense of a political entity uh, that was affirmed against others. Um, so, so, so I think it, it is important in all these dimensions of Europe to cast more light in the shadowy parts of, of the concept and its history. Yes, you. you I mean, it, I guess the first chapter or two maybe are really the the history of an idea, and it, it is very much focused, at least the beginning, on this interchangeability between Europe and Christendom. Um, was that the, the quote? The quote you have from Pope Pius II as referring to Europe as home. Is that really the first? Um, is that the first sort of moment that 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 concept is is broached or? or it, 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 as you say, is that this this idea of Europe being a a Western sphere? Does that come before that at all? Yeah, I, I think certainly the yeah exactly as you said that uh, the, the the concept traveled and moved west and north um, instead of being a southern and eastern concept. I think traveled um, alongside notions of where does the civilized world lie. So it's in a sense, it's all a construction about where, you know, d- defining who, who is Europe and who is the other, and hence moving it, as I said, west and north. And certainly when uh, when Pope Pius II uh, refers to Europe as home after the fall of the Constantinople, uh, that was clearly a sign that, um, you know, the Ottoman Empire was no longer Europe and Europe had moved elsewhere. Uh, which, which again, um, I think shows us how we have made the concept in what we wanted to be, and how actually it, for a period of time it was synonymous to Christianity, but then um, it also took a life of its own. There's, there's also this theme of the people of the East and South being, as, as you put it uh, in quotes. Uh, intelligent and sensitive people, but also lazy, lethargic, and ultimately corrupt, with a predisposition predisposition for despotic rule and apathy. H- how old is that idea? Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think you're, you're insinuating that it is also contemporary. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, th- I, I suppose there uh, we see, uh, you know, the seeds of, uh, or the seeds, or the 
the, the, the reality of Orientalism that Edward Said talked about in the 1970s. So the ways in which uh, the West, in inverted commas, um, constructs an image of the South, again, in inverted commas, or of the East, as then the Oriental other. Um, and I think what we try to point out is how uh, there is a game of mirrors. We all need to con- contrast ourselves to something else, and we need to construct this something else, oftentimes as... Uh, less good, um, you know, less different and less modern, less clever, less working hard, uh, less in anything to just to elevate ourselves. And there was clearly that um, that dynamic throughout the history of Europe, but particularly towards the Oriental others. So as, as Europe kept moving west and north as a, as a concept, and as a, if you want, as a geopolitical term or as a cultural term, um, it also based itself in orientalizing the other and constructing itself diff- as different from, yeah, those Eastern and Southern peoples. Mm. In one of the chapters, um, you talk about how the nation state has formalized and challenged the concept of Europe. Could, could you explain that, that idea? Well, historically, the nation states mainly emerged within the European continent and speaking within the geographically um, defined area of of Europe. And um, that was a particular moment in in our view, that was a particular historical moment of socioeconomic development, which also led to a political development, that of the nation state. And then we move also into a new period in in the history of Europe where um, then Europe has to come to terms with those particular, uh, you know, political entities that are uh, demand exclusive loyalty. Uh, But at the end of the day, I think the concept of Europe proved to be uh, malleable enough to embrace the nation state and actually turn it into something very distinctively European. Um, At a time when in other in other regions of the world, you know, empires, large geopolitical entities were um, the most common entities. Um, so so the, 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 there's certainly something in there in the European history and the nation state history. I also want to say that nation state might be a misnomer because most states are national states. So it's not a complete um, uh you know, kind of identification of the nation with the state. Rather, there is usually a national majority that conceives of the state as its property, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, in, in contrast to the nation states, you you say that uh, European unification offered the advantage of being a memoryless project. Can you explain that? No, we, uh, we with that we want to say that the European unification tried to cut, um, how you say, to, to 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 make itself free from past concepts of Europe and propose a new concept that was also a more limited concept of Europe, and that it also kind of forgot or pushed under the carpet um, all the others that were not included. Uh, you know, all the minorities or all the dark pages of European history and reconstructed a notion of Europe that was, uh, you know, the light, the, a notion of Europe that was only positive, um, 
and that had somehow a universal mission and we feel that this you know we need to pay more attention to all uh, you know the all the nuances within this history well i'm i'm going to move on to um to where the book overlaps with with current issues and there's quite a lot of that uh, it, towards the well, really from the middle of the book you um you you make these very salient points about attitudes to eastern europe that I think are particularly important now. You say that uh, Eastern Europe served as a space that would buffer Russia's outreach and as a space within which to mediate the Orient, you know, this being a, a I guess, typified EU view. And um, at the, at the idea of a return to Europe is, is seen as paternalistic Eurocentrism. Do you think um, the lessons of the Ukrainian war are changing these attitudes and are being reflected in the offer of enlargement beyond where the eastern border is now and the idea of this European political community. Do do, do you feel that people have learned their lessons? Yeah. Uh, Well, first of all, I I, I want to to remind us what what we discussed earlier and what we write in the book about the role of others in general for Europe and the Oriental other in particular, which was usually to be found more to the south than Russia, but with Russia was one of the Oriental others of Europe. So we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that, as I said, the origins of a notion of Europe are to be found in, the, in what is called today the Middle East. Um, and then they travel west and north. And then within the process of um, developing a notion of a European unity that is political, cultural, um, or even if you want, is based on a, some sort of belief into common ethnic origins or a set of origins for European peoples, then also Russia um, or and the Russian Empire comes into play as another. And it is one of those others that is both close and, and far and at times is European and at times is not, and poses the question also of where do the geographical boundaries of Europe stop? Um, and as we know, sometimes um, we have said that these boundaries are the Urals, so one part of Russia is within. Same, we have had um, the, the conversation about Turkey's Europeanness. Um, and I think on the whole, the relationship with Russia has been more a negative one rather than a positive one in Russia being considered as as another, as a powerful other towards whatever each time was called Europe had to demarcate itself from. Um, I think what we see today is more specific to geopolitics and but but it gives us a very good, how can I say, a very good example of how these um, these concepts and these histories are very much dynamic and moving, and in in this sense, where we try also to, to and, and you can imagine it's like walking a thin line today, given that the, the moment when this second edition was published, that we want to say we, we're totally against, of course, the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, but we also acknowledge how complex this history is how, like the question of where does Europe start and end, uh, 
how European is the Ukraine or how European is Russia is is not a settled issue. And it's some it's an issue that has to be decided both by the people themselves who are asking this question, am I European? But also by others categorizing them as more or less European. And uh, I think we need to be honest with ourselves. Um, this enthusiasm with the Ukraine wasn't there before the invasion. The invasion. Things have completely changed after the invasion because, of course, there is a feeling that um, the authoritarian, uh, you know, uh, moment that Russia is living the last 20 years is threatening, uh, you know, liberal democracy. But we actually, the, the, the situation in the Ukraine precisely proved how complex these issues are. Yeah, in a way, doesn't that uh, tie into your idea of um, different types of borders? So there is this, yes, we have this question about where where the geographical borders of Europe end, which it seems to me are, <clears throat> are mostly defined by by basically the size of the potential applicant. You know, Russia and Turkey are just too big. <laughs> um, but there is also this maybe developing new border of Europe, or the EU maybe as as a community of liberal democracies, so that Ukraine, yes, Ukraine, if it's ready in those terms can come in, Moldova, if it's ready in those terms can come in, Georgia, even if it's ready in those terms can come in. But Hungary is being maybe pushed out and, and Russia can't join and Turkey can't join partly because of their size and partly because of their propensity to authoritarianism. Do you think there's a link there? Yeah, precisely. There's um, there's different layers, um, exactly as you said it. So uh, when we get to, um, in in the book, in the chapter where we speak about global Europe and political Europe, um, you know, the lines are drawn harder and um, we we see a lot um, the tension each time. And of course, the tension is geopolitical, but it's also socioeconomic to the extent that Europe identifies as a free market economy. And of course, um, you know, the countries of Europe are liberal democracies and the extent to which cultural Europe is very much related to, to the idea of democracy, even though I, I want to also again emphasize that this democracy may be very imperfect, but, but there is certainly a commitment to democracy, like there is a commitment to welfare and to different ways of organizing welfare and, you know, different also stories of democracy in, it, in the different parts of Europe. Um, but then when we look at the history and at the culture, things are much more complex. And same when we look at what the chapter, for instance, where we speak about European identities in the plural, plural rather than European identity. And uh, I think that these are very important issues to make because um, points to make because oftentimes the geopolitical aspect shadows everything else. Um, and like rightly you pointed out earlier, there is um, a lot of elements in the history of Europe that relate to you know cultural demarcations of who is in and who is out. And for instance, are Muslim Muslims in or out? And what about the Balkan? Muslim history, what about Jews and, you know, the, the, the very painful history of Jews being of Europe, but also 
having suffered, uh, you know, the Holocaust. And um, um, right now, if if we think exactly about the, the 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 problems within different European countries, where does Hungary and Poland stand in terms of those? Uh, criteria. So we, we look on one hand at cultural historical aspects and then we look at current political issues and it's very hard to define. And I would say same for Turkey and Russia. One aspect is certainly the one that you're saying that these are very big countries and the, the geography of Europe somewhere has to play a role. It cannot be like um, any territory can be part of Europe. But at the same time, I think it has to do, in the case of Turkey, with Islam and with many Europeans feeling uneasy about it. And in the case of Russia, but again, Turkey today, it has to do with authoritarianism. Having said this, I think this shouldn't, um, however, hide from the picture. There's, There's a lot of cultural and historical ties that bring us together, Um, the different people, peoples that consider themselves European and the people and peoples of Turkey and Russia. And on that, on that element, I will say that, uh, well, b- both Ruby and I come from Greece and in Greece, we, we often, we like any Greek uses this expression, say, you, I, I went to Europe or in <laughs> Europe, they say that. And it kind of spontaneously expresses a feeling of distance from Europe, even though, of course, if you ask any uh, uh, Greek citizen, they will say, of course, Greece is part of Europe, or even more so, they'll say Greece is the cradle of European civilization. So I think it's, it's a nice way in colloquial terms to see these different layers playing out. Yeah, well, that's something the British and the Greeks have in common, I think. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, the, the chapter on identity is is kind of interesting in that you, you it seems to me you conclude that there isn't a European identity, and if there is, it's Viktor Orban's, um, or I think you actually say the Polish government's sum of Christian identities, or um, something that's very class delineated, that it's, it's the mobile um, border crossing class that values Europe for that, 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 that apart from that, there isn't really a common identity. Is it, did I read that right? I think, uh, well, uh, there isn't, there isn't. Yeah, again, it's, it's a moving target. Now, I think there is, of course, identity is always contextual. And in that sense, European identity is also contextual. So, uh, of course, if when one comes to Canada, where I'm now based, you say I'm a European, but when you're in Europe, you don't say I'm a European. You say I'm from X or uh, Y country, or sometimes you might even say which city or which region you're from. So it's all contextual. But I think what um, we argue in the book is that there are different layers of identity. And, of course, um, one identity that you're right is emerging is um, those people in Europe that are more uh, connected with other countries and you know other regions within Europe and that f- feel and live their Europeanness more actively, also thanks, of course, to the European Union. 
and uh, you know the way uh, this uh, the European Union has has made uh, you know mobility more seamless. At the same time, we are aware that this is um, while while it is a right for European citizens, it is not a right that everyone can exercise to the same degree because. Um, there's, there's a lot of strings attached related to opportunities for for work, for education, for travel, for leisure. Yeah, you, you make um, I think a really good point. Um, again, late in the book, uh, I'll read. It's quite a long quote, but I'll read it out. You say, "Given that diversity, pluralism, and conflict are core building blocks of the European construction, so too are anti-Europeanism, Euroscepticism, and Eurocriticism." that have accompanied the evolution of the European construction and been part of it. Similarly, the different forms of Euroscepticism are today a structural part of the European integration process itself. I, I think that's dead right. The idea of this, you know, there has been a creative destruction and destructive creation that's been inadvertently helped along by, by uh, Euroscepticism in many countries. Um, could you talk through that idea um, uh, and how it has worked in, in practical ways? Well, I, th- I think we, we want to point out in the book that um, um, it's not all a rosy picture and it's not all a picture of success. So, and um, uh, truly, if, if we see a power in the concept of Europe is that of, uh, <coughs> as you just said, um, how did you say, destructive uh, destructive creation. Yeah, yeah I think it works both creation. ways. Yeah. Uh, destructive creation. So we want to acknowledge both the celebration of diversity and pluralism, and you know the openness, um, and and if you want the dialogical construction of a new synthesis, but at the same time to also acknowledge that um, a lot of people contest with this Europe and and resist, and that this has been equally important because. Uh, you know, um, these contestations and these uh, conflicts have led to new, uh, you know, new ideas and also to more, I would say, the effort at least for a more inclusive uh, notion of Europe. I would say we, we're seeing this in relation to the different phases and the different, if you want, projects in history of uniting Europe, because we tend to focus today on the European Union and we forget the long history. Um, as we say in the book, the first one who tried to unify Europe was Napoleon. So um, it's uh, <laughs> there are very different projects of European unity that we that we have seen, and even today we we see very different concepts, but. Um, the, the contestation, I think, is, is part of the European integration process itself and it's part of uh, defining Europe, so it shouldn't be seen as a bad thing. Um, w- without this meaning that, that uh, um, um, myself, uh, how do you say it also, it's, we're um, uh, uh, European, how can I say, we're pro-Europeans of a certain age. Yes. Um, so... That, I think that it is um, it is very important to acknowledge the positive role that contestation has and criticism and Euroscepticism. Do, do you think? I mean, given everything you've said, that there, that there that this idea of a European political community is something that will be a useful concept, so that we can start to define Europe in broader terms than just the European Union. 
Yeah, on one hand, this might seem uh, a bit non- nonsensical today because the European Union is so, how can I say, imposing itself uh, on Europe in both, uh, you know, good ways and also sometimes in ways that, of course, people contest as it being very much a free market project or an elite project, at the same time being also um, a welfare project. And we've seen this also during the pandemic. Um but I think it is important that what we um, try to do in the book is important to keep the different layers and, and keep our awareness of those and acknowledge that when we get, when we get both to the core, we have a lot of questions. So, you know, what is the relationship between Europe and religion or religions? But also when we get to the outer circle or so to speak, the boundaries, the borders of what is European and what is not, this is fuzzy and it changes um, in time, and um, I think it is important to acknowledge this uh, fuzziness and this dynamic character, because this also is a, is a weapon against authoritarianism and totalitarianism, and um, you know, if, if you want, also against populism, uh, to invite people to reflect on how there are no black and white answers. The answers are usually different shades of gray, and. Uh, what we try to do also in the book is give people in in, a, in an easy format, not in a heavy academic format, but in an easy format, some elements to make up their own minds about where do they see themselves standing and where do they see their country or the region, their city, you know, their uh, identities, their different identities relating to Europe. Well, I think that's a good place to close. Um... Uh, as usual, because this is a podcast about books for book readers, I've asked my guests to make two recommendations. Um, what, what did you choose? Well, I have two books uh, to, to recommend, and they're both not very recent. One is by Gasman Kaplani, My Name is Europe, and it's a novel. And Europe is a, is a, is a young woman in the novel. And um, Gasman, who is a... Um, a Greek and an Albanian at the same time. And today, when he wrote the book, he lived in Greece. Now he lives in the United States. But he's playing a lot with this notion of Europe being a young woman in his life and Europe being the, the language. So how can a writer who is mother tongue Albanian but becomes also mother tongue Greek, um, how can he master the language? And it's also how Europe is elusive. So this young woman, the language, and Europe as such, the, the continent and the culture, is, is elusive. Um, and I think it's a, it's a very interesting novel and reflection. And it also um, testifies to how some people who are actually at uh, the fringes of Europe in many ways, like Greeks and Albanians, have to come to terms with what Europe is and how much and whether they are European. And my second suggestion is is a a book by my uh, former colleague and mentor, Bo Strott. And and Bo is originally Swedish, but has lived in different European countries. And the book is called Europe and the Other and Europe as the Other. And it precisely, it points to this issue that in, and, and Bo is a historian himself. So it is about, how Europe defines itself through different processes at different points in time and uh, how Europe defines itself against the mirror 
of the other, but is also the, the other for some other people. So that we need to decenter our gaze towards Europe and think about how do others think about Europe? That is always a useful exercise. Okay, thanks. I, I don't think either of those have been chosen before. So um, today I've been talking to Anna Triandafilidou about what is Europe, published by Routledge and free to download from the link in the podcast show notes. Uh, Anna, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you.